0: Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Monday, October 7th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, the October debate will break a record for the number of candidates on stage at once. Booker and Steyer qualify for the November debate. Ballot measures face an unexpected side effect of the 2018 midterms. Williamson raises $3 million. Sestak is gearing up to walk across New Hampshire, and Buttigieg speaks at an NAACP fundraiser in Indianapolis. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, let's talk about the October DNC debate. The first tidbit here is that having 12 candidates on stage at the same time actually sets a record for a presidential primary debate. That's one more candidate than the biggest stage in the 2016 Republican cycle, which was itself famously kind of a circus. So, basically, get your popcorn ready and put your seatbelt on, because this is going to be wild. In an article for Politico, Zach Montalero summed up the challenge. Quote, A crowded 12-person debate stage up from an already busy 10-person stage could also change the incentives for the candidates on stage. More candidates means less speaking time all around, and past debate rules have encouraged conflict between the candidates. Candidates who are mentioned by other candidates in past debates have gotten time to respond, which encourages lower-tier candidates to take a swing at a candidate at the center of the stage in hopes they can trigger an extended back-and-forth discussion. Moderators, too, have goaded candidates asking pointed questions about specific frontrunners' policies and history to other candidates. Neither the DNC nor the two media partners for the debate, CNN and the New York Times, has released the rules for the next debate yet. End quote. Okay, and while we at it, CNN has released the podium order for the stage. There was no need for the draw this time because there's just the one night. The positions are based on polling averages drawn from the period leading up to debate qualification. And by the way, yes, we do have a new candidate in the mix here, that's Tom Steyer, this will be his first time in a DNC debate. Alright, from left to right, the order is Gabbard, Steyer, Booker, Harris, Sanders, Biden, Warren, Buttigieg, Yang, O'Rourke, Klobuchar, and Castro. As we get closer to the debate, which is one week from tomorrow, I'll talk more about debate bingo and how you can stream the whole thing. After a new Fox News poll in South Carolina, we have two more candidates who have racked up enough polls to reach the November debate stage. Remember, we don't yet know when the debates will be, or where they'll be, and therefore what the cutoff date is for the polls, so get them while they're hot, I guess. Okay, the newly qualified candidates are Senator Cory Booker and Tom Steyer. Booker got 3% in South Carolina, and Steyer got 4%. The poll itself had a margin of error of 3.5 percentage points in either direction, so neither score is particularly amazing, but hey, it counts. The last time this particular poll was run was way back in July, and a lot has changed in the electoral landscape since then. A few notable results are that Biden is now up to 41% overall in that state, and Warren is at 12% in a distant second place. Behind her is Sanders with 10%, then Harris and Steyer are tied at 4%. Everybody else is down below that, and by the way, there is also a sizable 16% chunk of the people they polled who say they don't know who they'd vote for. Which is fair, because they still got some months to figure it out. Alright, so what else is going on with November qualification? Well, the addition of Booker and Steyer today brings that November field up to 7. We have one candidate right on the cusp of qualifying, that is Andrew Yang, who needs just one more poll. Then you have two candidates with one qualifying poll each. Those are Klobuchar and O'Rourke. Remember, this is the round where the DNC requires four polls at 3% or higher, and you have a lot of candidates hanging around with 1% and 2% results, but not quite cracking that 3% threshold. Next up, a story on ballot measures and how the blue wave in 2018 will make it harder for ballot measures to end up on the 2020 ballot. Okay, so first up, let's define what a ballot measure is real quick. These are sometimes called ballot initiatives or propositions, and those words tend to vary based on where you live. So you may have heard of some famous ones like Proposition 8 or Prop 8 in California. That is one of these. A ballot measure is any piece of proposed legislation that is put on a local ballot for a vote by the voting population rather than the legislature itself. At least where I live, these things tend to be stuff like legalizing marijuana or same-sex marriage or certain kinds of tax plans or other stuff that might have a different outcome if voters voted on the issue directly rather than going through their state legislature. The people who put together ballot measures have to follow local law, whether this is state or county or whatever is relevant, and often that law requires gathering a bunch of signatures from registered voters in order to put the issue on the ballot. Okay, so I think we've got that relatively well defined. Well, in an article for The Fulcrum by Jeff West, we learn about a surprising outcome of the surge in voter turnout in 2018. Long story short, in roughly half of U.S. states, the turnout of the previous election dictates how many signatures you need to get to put a ballot measure on the next election's ballot. So, that 2018 surge in turnout means that it is far more difficult and far more expensive to get these kinds of issues on the ballot in 2020. Reading from the article, quote, The upshot is the sort of irony associated with no good deed going unpunished. In California, for example, groups will need nearly 1 million signatures for a 2020 ballot measure. For 2018, that number was only 585,000. In Oregon, the signature requirement jumped 27% thanks to all the extra votes cast last time. In Arizona, it went up 58%. It will have an effect, but whether it will be measurable by the number of initiatives that qualify for the ballot... I don't know, said Josh Altick, Ballot Measures Project Director at Ballotpedia, which tracks the progress of state ballot measures. But I guarantee that it will be measurable in terms of what the average total cost of qualifying an initiative for the ballot is going to be in 2020. That's because few citizen-led ballot initiatives are solely volunteer efforts. The majority are high-dollar affairs that require gathering signatures using resources like paid circulators. In 2018, the average cost per signature of a ballot measure nationwide was $5.60, according to Ballotpedia, end quote. Okay, almost 6 bucks per signature average across the whole country. That is a lot. So if you need a million signatures in California, you're going to need something like $6 million to put your measure on the ballot. Alright, check out the article, there's a link in the show notes, for a more complete discussion of why this cost is going up and how hard it's going to be to get more measures on the 2020 ballot. And now some more fundraising news. Author Marianne Williamson announced late last week that her campaign has raised $3 million in Q3. Now that is substantially up from the $1.5 million in each of Q1 and Q2 this year. So, great momentum. That's a 100% jump from the previous quarter. But the Williamson campaign faces a problem in terms of cash on hand. Reading from an article in CNN by Dan Marica, quote, Williamson, however, has spent much of the money she has raised. Her campaign announced on Thursday that the author had just over $650,000 in the bank, a small bankroll considering Williamson has raised more than $6.1 million in 2019. End quote. Now, while we don't yet have detailed breakdowns on spending for Q3, it seems likely that a lot of this money went to advertising. That's where a ton of political spending happens for everybody. And Williamson, like all the Democratic candidates, has been forced to run ads at least to hit that donor threshold for the DNC debates, but also to make sure her name is still out there, that it is clear to folks that she is definitely still in this race. Also, this $3 million raise needs to be put in context. The obvious context is, okay, yeah, this is way less than, say, Sanders, Warren, Biden, Buttigieg, Harris, Yang, and Booker. But it is substantially ahead of Senator Michael Bennett, who brought in just $2.1 million in the same quarter, and she also beat Montana Governor Steve Bullock, who raised $2.3 million and is now seeking public financing. And there are still plenty of low-polling candidates who have not yet released their figures. So, Williamson already seems to have a better fundraising base than sitting senators and governors in this race. Stay tuned for October 15th, which is both the debate night and also the deadline for submitting your Q3 numbers to the FEC. Former Congressman and retired three-star Admiral Joe Sestak is gearing up for a very long walk. Now, a quick reminder, Sestak entered the race extremely late due to his daughter's brain cancer. She's doing better now, so he's in the race now, but he has not yet managed to qualify for a DNC debate. Now, that has not stopped him from doing a ton of retail politics on the ground in Iowa. If you follow his Twitter feed, Sestak is pushing hard to meet small groups of people face-to-face. And he often posts short videos recorded in dark motel parking lots summing up whatever he did on a given day. Point being, he is campaigning hard on a shoestring budget, but almost nobody outside of the early voting states really knows that. So, Sestak is about to do something a little unusual. He is going to walk the length of New Hampshire from east to west. Now, New Hampshire is not that big, so that is roughly a 100-mile walk, and he plans to take about seven days to do it. Reading from an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer by Julia Teruso, quote, Sestak has New Balance sneakers for warmer days and Land's End boots for colder nights. He bought a reflective vest and a headlight. He'll walk along highways and through towns and cities, and make more than 30 campaign appearances along the way. He'll stop to stay overnight in motels, at which point he'll jab a stick in the ground so he can pick up the walk where he left off. He hopes people join him. On October 15th, when 12 Democrats running for president are on the debate stage in Ohio, Sestak will be passing through Wyndham, New Hampshire. He'll go to a town hall meeting and then host a live stream conversation. End quote. And, by the way, this is not Sestak's first walk. He famously walked more than 420 miles across the entire length of Pennsylvania back in 2015 when he was running for Senate. Now, he did not win that race, but he did get media attention for the walk, and he got a lot of face time with actual voters on the ground. So, he is at it again. Here is a clip of Sestak explaining his motivations for the walk while walking through a farm field by a busy road in New Hampshire. Listen in. On Sunday, October 13th, I'm going to begin to walk across New Hampshire, 105
1: miles. I'm gonna begin in Chesterfield, which is right on the border with Vermont. Actually, there's a bridge there called the U.S. Navy Seabee Bridge. But I'll continue on all the way to Portsmouth. That harbor looks out on the Atlantic Ocean, where I used to sail across to the Persian Gulf, once to war. I'm doing this because I honestly believe that public servants serve people. And as President of the United States of America, I want to make sure that all Americans, all Americans understand. I serve them, above party, above self, above any special interest. We need to unite this country because there are defining challenges that have to be addressed. And without a united America, there's no way that can we meet these challenges of our time. I'm we'll going be walking and meeting people across the entire state of New Hampshire, whether it's in mental health areas, to meet people that are challenged and doctors that take care of them people who have children with autism, or whether it's also to visit the homeless, veterans included, to meet manufacturers, to meet the labor force, to meet teachers. I want to walk in their shoes. As Scout's Father Atticus said in a you can't know a man until you stand in his shoes, and begin to walk in. Them. So that's why I'm gonna be walking across New Hampshire, the Granite State. It's beautiful, as you can see here. And I'm doing it because I really want people to know that it is about them. It is about all Americans because we really do have more in common than we do in differences. I'm Joe Sestak and I look forward to you joining me on the walk, whether it's by viewing these videos or by, whether it's by joining me. But above all, I want to serve America and that means Americans. Thank you
2: very much.
0: And last up today, a clip from Mayor Pete Buttigieg. On Friday night, he spoke for a little over 20 minutes to the Indianapolis branch of the NAACP. He was there for their 50th Freedom Fund banquet. And one segment of his remarks kind of jumped out at me. After speaking about voter suppression in his state and listing the names of black members of his community who have been killed by the police, he gave a simple explanation of white privilege and his own experience of discrimination, which itself is not racial. I think this is worth listening to, in part because Buttigieg needs to make inroads with black voters, but also because it speaks to a kind of honesty that we need to hear from candidates. The part before this is about being an ally. And then this part is about privilege and acknowledging the differences between all people and their experiences. That is the first step to then acknowledging the commonalities of those experiences. Okay, so listen in.
2: So I've seen the possibilities and the limitations of what can be done in a diverse community, a diverse state, while our nation continues to accept the unacceptable. And I must also say that I come at the question of equality from a perspective shaped by my own search for belonging. I have not had the experience of being more likely to be pulled over while driving or less likely to be called back for a job interview or less likely to be believed when describing symptoms at a hospital simply because of the color of my skin. But I have heard so many stories of those who have. I am conscious that that is not my experience and everyone should be conscious that race is not only something that is part of the experience of color. The very experience of whiteness is being able to afford to not always think about race. But I'll also say that I am mindful of the fact that people very different from me helped bring me some of the most important rights in my life. No different experiences of discrimination are alike, but I do know something of the conflict that breaks out in the heart of a young person when he realizes that a basic fact about him means that he will be more likely to be feared, hated, subject to random violence, and denied opportunities. And I also know something of the amazing power of activism and advocacy, solidarity and alliance to help deliver more equal rights. As someone whose marriage exists by the grace of a single vote on the United States Supreme Court, I know why political decisions matter, why politics matters. It matters because the decisions they make in those big white buildings come into our lives, our neighborhoods, our homes, and our marriages.
0: His full remarks, which are only about 20 minutes, are linked in the show notes. The last link is a video of the whole thing. It is a remarkable speech, and I recommend it to you if you want to see how Buttigieg does in a room that's mostly full of black voters. And, spoiler alert, he does pretty well. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Well, winter is officially coming, y'all. My weather app tells me we will have a hard, hard freeze coming in the middle of the week in Portland. So now I gotta go out there and undo this whole irrigation thing that I just built for that dumb Arborvita, which by the way is doing awesome thanks to the excessive watering I've been doing. I'm going to go ahead and do that before the pipes freeze and explode or whatever happens with water and I don't know. Anyway, get hyped. You can stay tuned later in this week for stories of how I've configured several robotic vacuum cleaners to do most of my chores for me. I am very excited about that and I hope you are too. As always, thanks for listening and I will talk to y'all tomorrow.